Jesus is our living hope. He's not this, this passive hope. He, we're not white-knuckling and just hoping that what he said is true. Jesus is alive and he's active today and he is with us. So thank you for doing your best to be part of church this morning. This is such a great morning that we get to just celebrate each calendar year where we get to remember the sacrifice that Christ made. And we're in the... the we're at the end of a four-part message series, but due to a power outage here at the church, we're actually only on part three, but um, don't worry. This is the conclusion for our, our message series. I skipped another one, but what we do is we go through the Bible, we go through these message series in order to explore different themes and topics, books of the Bible, and next week we're actually starting a new series called We Are the Church, because the church isn't just a building. It's not just where we gather here, upstairs or downstairs or outside. It's a people. It, the church is Easter people. It's resurrection people. It's people who are living with new life and resurrection power. So I'm excited to kick that one off next week with a baptism service. But today we're concluding our series called Things Jesus Never Said. And some of you might be wondering, why on earth are we talking about things Jesus didn't say in church and on Easter? But the reason we're doing this is if you look to the Bible, in the New Testament, there are four books at the beginning. You have an Old Testament, New Testament, and at the beginning of the New Testament are the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And in certain Bibles, you'll find words that are in red. And the reason they're highlighted in red is because those are the words of Jesus. They're indicating that these are words attributed to him. And when you read the words of Jesus, they are otherworldly. Like, they just blow your mind. And if you've been around the gospel for a while, sometimes you tend to take for granted the power of what Jesus actually said. So what I like to do sometimes is contrast what Jesus did say with what he didn't say. What he could have said, what you or I might have said if we were in his shoes— but we do that in order to embrace the power of what he did say. So to start off the message, and just to keep it kind of fun, I've been doing this each week, I've got some memes that I'm going to show you. And there are three things that Jesus did not say. So first, he did not say, blessed are those who wear fly Easter outfits, for theirs is the kingdom of God. You guys look good today, but Jesus didn't say it. <laughs> My dad used to dress me up in a suit with a pink tie, and he would wear that, and my brother would wear it, and I would try and sneak my Game Boy in the pocket. Never worked. <laughs> he also didn't say, as often as you gather today, eat Cadbury cream eggs, peeps, and chocolate-covered bunnies in remembrance of me. Sounds good, but he didn't say it. <laughs> he also didn't say, come follow me, and no one will fight in the car on the way to the Easter service at church. <laughs> Some of you are like, yeah, we just proved that. Like, shut up, kids, don't fight. We're here to worship Jesus. Like, don't even ask Amanda and I about our weekend. Let's just say we drove in separate cars today. <laughs> so I wonder how many of you, and you don't need to raise a hand, but how many of you battle with feeling guilty? Like, man, I often feel guilty. So today we're going to look at what Jesus didn't say about guilt and sin. And the one thing Jesus didn't say is you get what you deserve. So did you know that one of the top guilts that people feel is food guilt. Just be prepared if you're going somewhere after this. Food guilt is a real thing. The struggle is real. 29% of what we eat makes us feel guilty. It's interesting. Now, if you're a man, you feel guilty for about 20 minutes. If you're a woman, 
that tends to go on longer, and I have no theories why, nor am I going to comment on that. That's between you and God. I have no opinions. But there's all types of guilt. There's mom guilt. No matter what you do, you feel like you just can't measure up. If you're a working mom, well, then you're feeling guilty sometimes that you're not at home. And if you're a stay-at-home mom, well, then sometimes you're feeling guilty that you're not at working. And if you've got a Pinterest perfect friend, we all have one or two of those in our lives, it's like you love them and you hate them. Because like you just can't measure up because they have all the baked goods and they've always put together and they bring it out to the parties. And not only did you forget the baked goods, you actually forgot to bring your kid to the party. And <laughs> you're just like... <laughs> But there's general guilt. There's this guilt that I'm guilty, I don't knew, do enough to help people. I feel guilty if I, if I don't say no when I should say no, but I'm always feeling pressure to say yes. And then there's guilt when I finally do say no. There's spiritual guilt where it's like, oh, I don't serve enough, I don't give enough. I've lost my version Bible streak and now I'm back at day one, like no. It's like, I, I told a lie. I was jealous of somebody. I did the best I could to hold my marriage together, but as hard as I tried, I just couldn't make it work. And you might still feel guilty, or, or you might feel guilty. It's like, ah, oh, I say, say bad words. I take God's name in vain. I love Jesus, someone might say, and yet I still battle with looking at lustful images online. Well, today, I want to look at what we do when we find ourselves feeling guilty before God. I want to look at what Jesus did not say about sin and about guilt. So if you feel guilty, I get it. I understand. I, I even have a thing that I'll call pastor's guilt, that I don't live up to my own standards as a pastor. I feel like I don't live up to God's standards as a pastor. And if I'm doing a really good job as a pastor, well, then I'm not doing so great as a dad. Or if I'm doing really great as a dad, then I'm not doing enough as a pastor. But the one that... <laughs> I still it just, I have to laugh at myself for this. I was a youth pastor before I became a lead pastor and a church planter. And parents entrust their kids to you when you're a youth pastor. And they're like, oh yeah, take my kids up the side of a mountain on a hike. And that's a whole nother story. But the one that really comes to mind is when we were leaving a ski retreat. We we're driving down from Mount Baker out in Washington. I was serving as a youth pastor at West and and I saw a guy with a broken down car on the side of the road. And I'm like, well, I can't leave that guy stranded on the side of the road. We're all leaving for the day. And so I pull the car over and I'm like, hey, what's going on? And he's like, oh, I just need to get some gas. I'm out. Can you take me into town? So I'm like, yeah, sure, hop in. I forgot that I had a car packed full of youth already in my car. And they're like squeezed in the back looking at me with their eyes wide open. And when we finally got to the gas station, they're like, Kevin, this guy's going to kill us. And I'm like, what am I doing? But I, I picked up a random hitchhiker and stranger and brought him in my car. And then I can't leave him now because I'll feel guilty just stranding, stranding him at the gas station. But then these kids are also like, oh, man. So I threatened them with their lives not to tell their parents about this one. But I had so much guilt about it. Like what am I doing? And then I'm sure Amanda also called me out on that and was like, what were you doing? <laughs> but I just say that to, to illustrate that I understand guilt. I have so many more examples I could go into, as I'm sure you guys all do. But I want us to go to Luke's gospel. Luke chapter 23. And we're going to look at the way Luke describes the final hours 
of the life of God's Son, Jesus. So take a moment to turn there now if you want uh, to read with me in your Bible or use the Pew Bible in front of you, the red ones, or even in the Bible app on your phone. And while you're flipping there, let me give you some context. And we are going to be staying primarily in Luke 23, so you can keep your thumb in the page. But it would shock you how you would see Jesus at this moment. Instead of wearing a golden crown, he's wearing a crown of thorns. Instead of being surrounded by servants, he's surrounded by thieves. Instead of sitting on a throne, we're going to see Jesus hanging on a cross. And Luke's gospel says this in verse 32 of chapter 23. Two other men. Let's all say two. I want you to pay careful attention because I'm going to ask you a math question in just a moment. It's coming right out of the text. I hope you get it right or you might feel guilty for not paying attention on Easter. <laughs> two other men. We'll all say two again. Two. two other men, both criminals, were also led out with Jesus to be executed when they came to the place called the Skull. They crucified Jesus there along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. So the question is, how many people were hanging on a cross that day? Three. The answer is three. Three people were hanging on a cross. So I want to talk for a moment about death by crucifix uh, crucifixion, because this will give you some context into what Jesus did for us, and it will also give you some insight into who was hanging next to him. To be executed by crucifixion was known as the time as the most painful and brutal way to die. Not only was it physically painful, it was spiritually shameful to die on a cross. And here's why. Physically, it was horrible. If you've ever heard the word excruciating, ex means out of and cruciating means cross, crucifix. So the word excruciating is out of the cross. And it was shameful because, one, they would strip you down naked to further humiliate you. And Scripture actually says that it's shameful or cursed for anyone who dies on a tree, implying that you're dying on a cross, Deuteronomy 21. So it's physically painful, it's spiritually shameful, and this is what would happen. First, it would start with the scourging. The Roman soldiers would take a whip that had glass or nails woven into it. They'd take off your shirt and they would whip you 39 times. Your internal organs might be exposed by the time they were done. You'd lose so much blood that you would often go into a state of shock. And once you would finally physically recover, you would carry your own cross to the place where they would take seven-inch stakes and drive them through your wrist and through your heels. The stake would go through your wrists and the only way you could get a breath would be by pushing yourself up on the stake in your feet and pulling on your wrists. And you would do this for as long as you could, for two days, three days, four days. And one of the reasons why this was a rare way to kill somebody is because it would often take four days. And you'd have to pay four Roman guards to stand watch the entire time. It was the most expensive, most excruciating, and most spiritually shameful way to die. Sometimes you would go mad, you'd bake under the sun, but eventually you'd either die by suffocating or just from sheer exhaustion. But on day number four, if you were still alive, as an act of mercy, the guards would take clubs 
and they would beat your knees until your legs were broken as an act of mercy so that you no longer have the ability to push yourself up. And then you would suffocate and just die a brutal death. And this was reserved for the worst of the worst criminals. This was for those who broke significant crimes. So in other words, the two criminals that were hanging on Jesus left and right, they had done something horrible. They weren't just pickpockets. They had done something deserving of this very expensive and painful and very shameful way to die. Three people were hanging on a cross. And Jesus, in the middle of this, as the crowd was spitting on him, cursing at him, he looks up to heaven and he prays. And what he did not pray was, God, send a thousand powerful angels to come down with swords and wipe them out. What he didn't pray was, well, if they're going to humiliate me, bring a strong wind and take their clothes off. I might have gone that route, but Jesus didn't say it. What Jesus did pray was, Father, please forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Scripture goes on to say in verse 39 that one of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at Jesus. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. This arrogant, prideful, very guilty man who saw no need whatsoever for mercy, grace, or a savior hurls insults at Jesus. But the other criminal rebuked the first one. He asked, don't you even fear God since you're under the same sentence? Then verse 41, he says something very interesting. He said, we're punished justly. We are getting what our deeds deserve. You see, the other criminal recognized, hey, we've committed some type, we don't know what it was, but some type of very real significant crime. And the punishment that we're getting is just fair. It's just. We're getting what we deserve. So I want to try something, and I'm going to ask for everyone to participate. It's easy. You don't have to do anything crazy. You just have to finish a sentence. I'm going to give you the first half of a familiar statement, and if you know it, then just say it out loud. So here's the first one. What goes around comes around. Your past will come back to... All right. If you make your bed, you got to sleep in it, lie in it. Absolutely. These are all different ways to say you get what you deserve. And if you're anything like me, there's a dark, sick part of me that actually likes when someone gets what they deserve. Like, I've shared this before. It always comes down to driving stories, especially on this one, but I don't know if I should continue admitting it in church, but I'm sure you're much more holy than I am. But man, coming in White Church or Binbrook Road or Highway 56, if you're doing the speed limit and you're just in one of those moods one day where you're like, I'm just going to take a nice Sunday drive, and someone just whips by you in a sports car like they own the road, and then you see them pulled over a few kilometers later down the road, I'm thinking like, yes, that's right, buddy. You got it. Like, I'm driving by like you should have known better. I love when people get what they deserve, unless it's me. Then I'm like, oh, officer, I, I, I have this excuse and this excuse. And I remember the first time I got a speeding ticket, and it was a doozy on the link. And I'm like, I'm so sorry, and I'm crying. And he's like, I know you're sorry for getting caught. And I'm like, ooh. <laughs> but there's a sick part of me that likes when somebody gets what they deserve, except for me. I don't want to get it. But the second criminal, let's look at what he said. He said, we're punished justly. We're getting what our deeds deserve. 
But then he looks at Jesus and says, but this man, Jesus, has done nothing wrong. Then watch what the criminal, who's aware of his own sin, says. He looks at Jesus and he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And let me tell you what Jesus did not say. Jesus did not look at him and say, nah, I've never liked you. <laughs> he, he didn't say, sorry, buddy, you're going to go to hell where there's gnashing of teeth, the fire never ends. He didn't say, no, 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 no. I was preaching at the Sermon of the Mount. You were there playing games, scrolling on Instagram, doing whatever on your phone. You weren't paying attention. You had your shot. He didn't say, I'm sorry, after the way you lived, like, I can forgive a lot of things, but not your sins. Jesus didn't say anything like that. Let me tell you what he did say. And let me tell you who he said it to. He said it to a criminal who couldn't do a single thing to earn his right standing with God. He said it to a person who couldn't do a single good work because his hands were spiked to a tree. He couldn't turn over a new leaf because his feet were bound. He couldn't get baptized. He couldn't join a church. He couldn't give an offering. He couldn't even lift his hands up to God because they were bound. He couldn't do a single thing to earn any right standing with God. And Jesus looked at this very guilty, sinful, but repentant man. And this is what Jesus said. Jesus said that I tell you today, today, you will be with me in paradise. Your sins will be forgiven. Even though you can't earn it, even though there's nothing you can do to deserve it, I will show you grace and you will be with me in paradise. And in the words of my daughter, that's not fair. <laughs> like, he didn't deserve that. He didn't deserve it. It's not fair. So let me tell you what I don't deserve. I don't deserve in any way, shape, or form to be standing in front of you today preaching. I don't deserve it at all. I grew up going to church. I was a church kid. I had the head knowledge, but I didn't have the heart knowledge. And as a kid, I used to lie and steal. I remember it very clearly starting in grade three. I'd go through my classmates' cubbies while they were out of the class, and I would pick out all the cool things that I thought, oh, that eraser's cool. Or I remember there was some mouse toy that someone had, grabbed that. And I would tell my mom at the end of the day, oh, I found it on the side of the road. And she became suspicious after a week straight of bringing home cool things I found on the side of the road. But I stole expired candy from my grade three teacher. She sat the class down and she said, whoever stole this candy is gonna get very sick. Well, I had just been off school for four days, very sick. I don't know why she had that in the, her classroom. That's another story. But I actually tried to confess that one. And I said, I stole the candy. And she said, Kevin, don't take the blame for this. It was here while you were gone. I'm like, okay. <laughs> I got caught stealing bubble gum. I almost got away with it until I got into a pillow fight with my brother. We were on a road trip, and that's where I had stored all my bubble gum. So I smoked him across the face, and he's like, what's in your pillow? And we empty it out, and my dad turns the car back around. Now, you're probably thinking, oh, you were a kid for all these stories, but that's because it just gets more embarrassing as I get older. But I wasn't that much better. As I got older, I continued to lie. I would exaggerate. I remember changing my grades in my grade nine French class. This was before computers. And the teacher had left the room and I went into her thing and I'm like, okay, 87. And she didn't catch it. So I was like, yes. So sorry if you're watching this now and realizing. <laughs> but I'd exaggerate, I'd lie some more. I remember sitting down with a psychologist 
And I told him that I am convinced I could pass a polygraph based on lies because I would believe it so much I could convince myself. But where that scared me is that I didn't even know what was truth anymore. If I could pick and choose what I wanted to believe. And then I partied like the best of them, wild hurting people, sinning sexually, the list goes on and on until finally I woke up one Sunday morning and I looked at myself and I thought, I hate who I had become. I was ashamed. The guilt was overwhelming. And the only way I know how to describe it, and some of you, you're going to know exactly what I mean when I say this, I was dead on the inside. I was just dead. There was no hope, no joy, no life. Dead. And then one Sunday morning, I woke up, hungover with a pounding headache, and I decided to watch a church service online. This was 2006, before church online was cool. But I remember being challenged. What are the things taking the place of God in my life? I'm like, there's nothing taking the place of God. And it was kind of a question of like, well, what do you need to give up for God? And I'm like, well, I'd give up anything for God. He's just never going to ask me. I had the head knowledge. I got it. I understood it. But Jesus was challenging me to think for myself. Were there things I need to give up? So what I chose to do next was party some more because I got to stop thinking about these things. That's crazy. <laughs> Until the day when Jesus showed up in my house and he met me in a real and personal way. He broke through to my freaking hard heart and he opened my eyes to the mess that was surrounding me, that I was living in, the brokenness. And in that moment, I no longer went from having a head knowledge. Something moved about 18 inches down into my heart. And this is the truth that moved into my heart. Scripture says this, like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. I want you to notice this. Like the rest, like all of us, like you, like me, by nature, because of our sinful nature, we deserve punishment. That's what scripture says. By nature, we are deserving of wrath, but because of his great love for us, our good God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions. He made us alive. So church, I hope somebody will know this and feel it and believe it, that Jesus did not come to make bad people good. Jesus came to make dead people alive. That's what we celebrate this morning, that he is alive. Our God is that good, and he doesn't just come back to life for his own goodness and his own glory. He comes back to life to bring us all into new life. Scripture says, for it's by grace that you've been saved through faith. It's not from yourselves. It's the gift of God. It's not by works so that nobody can boast. Jesus makes dead people alive. So if you're feeling dead on the inside, Jesus is waiting for you. Imagine for a moment what it would be like for that undeserving criminal to hear those words. You are forgiven. Your sins will not be held against you. And then if the, imagine if the Roman guards heard that and thought, well, we should let this guy go. This didn't happen, but just work with me. Imagine if it did. Imagine if they actually take the guy down off the cross, this guilty guy, and they say, okay, you, you can be free. He would have horrible wounds, but listen, his wounds would heal. 
He would recover and there would be years added to his life. But what do you think the rest of his life would be devoted to after someone else died so that he could live? You know it, you can feel it every moment of every day. There would never be a day where he wouldn't think about what an innocent man did for him. His life would be fully devoted, completely given to the one who gave it all to him. And it's by his grace that I am saved. And if I feel that and you sense it, it's because his story is my story. I'm undeserving, I'm guilty, I'm unworthy. Yet the innocent one, Jesus, the Lamb of God, the Son of God, was slain for my sins. And if I live passionately for him, because it's because every day I'm aware that I didn't get what I deserve. And I don't know about you, but I thank God for his word, I thank God for his grace, and I thank God for what he says in Psalm 103, that our God does not punish us for our sins. He doesn't deal harshly with us as we deserve. For his unfailing love toward those who fear him is as great as the height of the heavens above the earth. Our God is so good that he has removed our sins as far as the east is from the west. That's how good our God is. His story is my story. So how many people were hanging on a cross that day? Three. There were three. And have you ever heard of numerology? It's the study of spiritual meaning behind numbers. And if you've never studied it, it's fascinating. Even give it a quick Google search. But in scripture, numbers have meanings. Like number one always represents unity or the oneness of God. It represents God. Four, if you see it in scripture, it tends to represent the earth. Five represents grace. Seven is perfection or holiness, God's number. Six is one less than perfection, the number of man or the number of the evil one, 666. Eight represents new beginnings. 10 is the number of testing. 40 is the number of trials. And there's all sorts of different things where you'll see the same spiritual theme behind numbers. And three in scripture means completeness or wholeness. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> It means it's completed. It's fully done. God is often represented in three different natures. Who's God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit? We humans are often seen as triune beings, body, soul, spirit. God is represented many times and described as having three qualities. He's omnipresent. He's everywhere. He's om omniscient. He's all-knowing. And he's omnipotent. He is all-powerful. In Revelation, Jesus is described as the one who was and is and is to come. The grace of God manifests itself in three different forms of grace. There's justifying grace, sanctifying grace, glorifying grace. The Old Testament, there's three patriarchal fathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. The tabernacle has three sections, outer court, inner court, holy of holies. The angels cry out to God three times, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Daniel prays three times a day. Jonah was in the belly of a fish for three days. The New Testament has 27 books, which is three times three times three. And I know I'm pushing it here, but this is numerology and some of the significance that you can have fun with when you start exploring how these authors have weaved this story together through the Holy Spirit to bring it together to show that this is not an accident. The apostle Paul was blinded for three days with a bright light from heaven. He prayed three times for a thorn that tormented him to be removed. He was stranded on Malta for three months after being shipwrecked. 
Jesus, when he was born, the wise men came with three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. At the age of 12, he was separated from his parents for three days. His public ministry lasted three years. It started when he was 30, it ended when he was 33. He was tempted by the devil in the desert for three days. He had 12 disciples, three were in his inner circle, Peter, James, and John, who saw the Mount of Transfiguration, who were also with him in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus predicted that Peter would deny him three times, and he did. He restored him, showed his love and grace three different times before Peter preached at Pentecost. And God spoke audibly, recorded in Scripture to Jesus three times. Jesus raised three people from the dead, Jairus' daughter, the widow's son, and of course, Lazarus. Jesus prayed three times in the Garden of Gethsemane. And tradition actually tells us that Jesus fell three times while carrying his cross. And there were three men hanging on the cross that day. And above Jesus was a sign that said, King of the Jews in three different languages, Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. Jesus, God's Son, our Savior, was placed on the cross at the third hour of the day. At the ninth hour, which is 3 p.m., he declared three words of victory. Jesus said, it is finished. And the earth shook, darkness fell across the land, and for three hours the world went silent. There was no hope, no life. Day one, nothing happened. Day two, nothing happened. But on the third day, when the women went to the tomb, the stone was not there. It had been rolled away because the work that our God sent Jesus to do was completed. It was perfect. It was done. It was over. It is finished, he declared. And that's why, because the perfect work for forgiveness of sins has been displayed by the love of God, they will no longer hold our sins against us when we are in Christ. It's because of that Jesus could look at a repentant person who could do nothing to earn his forgiveness. And he could declare, your sins are forgiven. Friends, if your guilt is heavy, confess it to him. Our God is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You are not here by accident. You are here to experience the grace, the gospel, and the good news of Jesus Christ. So if you feel dead on the inside, know this. Jesus didn't come to make bad people good. He came to make dead people alive. And for that, we give him glory, we give him honor, because he is risen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, today, work in the hearts of your people. As we pray, those of you who are followers of Christ and you just want to be ever aware of his grace so you can represent his love everywhere you go, just lift your hand and let me pray for you. God, thank you for a church full of people ready to show the grace of Jesus. Bring it to the front of our minds every moment of every day that we live and live right with you because Jesus gave his life for us. And as we keep praying, there are some of you that you become intimately aware that you don't have that joy. You're looking at your life and you realize that you're a little bit dead on the inside. You're feeling the weight of your guilt. You may be like me. 
I was a church kid, kind of went to church. I had it in my head, but I didn't know it in my heart. Maybe you're not a church person at all, and suddenly there's something drawing you toward the things of God. That's the loving kindness of God. You are not here by accident. God's grace is drawing you. He's drawing you to Jesus. Jesus, the Son of God, who is perfect in every way, who died on the cross and rose again so that anyone, including you, doesn't matter who you are, doesn't matter what you've done, doesn't matter how dark your life feels, doesn't matter how heavy the guilt is, anyone who calls on the name of Jesus will be saved and forgiven. That's why you're here today. Those of you who say, I know it, I'm guilty, I, I need his forgiveness, I need his healing, I want that peace, I want that joy, I feel dead on the inside, I want to feel alive. If that's your prayer today, would you just lift your hand so I can pray for you? Yes, Lord, I surrender my life to you, I give my life to you. sin. Today I'm giving my life to you. In honor of those meeting Christ today or recommitting their lives to him, join me in praying for those around you. Heavenly Father, we surrender our life to you. Completely to you. Jesus, save us our sins. Make us brand new. Fill us with your spirit so we can show your love in all that we do. Jesus, my life is not my own. I give it to you. I commit it to you. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.